I think we are calling things war because it's the socially acceptable way to pretend you are dealing with a problem. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm here in Washington today, joined by FP contributor Rosa Brooks, Senior Future of War Fellow at New America, professor at Georgetown University, and author of the acclaimed book, How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything. And here also is Yuki Driesen, FP's managing editor for news and author of The Invisible Front. Although by the time you hear this, Yuki will have another title. He will be the deputy managing editor of Vox, which is bigger and fancier than FP. But a sign of our magnanimity, we're inviting him here for what will not be a farewell podcast, because we'll invite him back when he's a big shot at Vox. Um, anyway, congratulations you. to you, Yaki, and we're glad to have you here. Thanks. Calling into the studio from Palo Alto is FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on sun tanning. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. It says military history. Um, but both They're of, very similar. Very similar, exactly. Thank you, by the way, to all of our ER nerds and listeners for tuning in again and sharing your ideas and comments. We always love hearing from you, so keep them coming. We will be choosing now five a week because the demand has been so insane for these mugs, which are now coveted and probably traded. David, on. how come you only ordered two mugs? Well, there were only two listeners. <laughs> we can do the arithmetic. Um, but the demand actually exceeded our number of listeners by some amount. Uh, and uh, so uh, we're only going to give out five a week from now on. What that means is if you have an idea and you submit it, it actually has to be a good idea. And if you're one of the top five for the week, then you get a free mug. So let's see how that works. Put on your thinking caps. Email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. And maybe you'll get a mug and maybe you won't. And then you'll just covet them. Uh, recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. We're at an amazing moment in history right now. We're all sitting in a hemisphere where there is not a war going on. This is really unusual. Half the planet, there is no war going on because of the agreement reached between the FARC guerrillas and the Colombian government this week, ending a war that's been going on for half a century and that has killed 220,000 people uh, and has displaced millions. In other words, essentially, this was the Syria of the Americas, a real catastrophe uh, that we became inured to because it went on and on and on, just like we become inured to wars as being uh, a, a commonplace on life on the planet. Although people like Professor Steven Pinker, who've written books suggesting that war is on the way out. Meanwhile, Rosa Brooks, also known as Rosa Front Page Book Review in the New York Times, Brooks has written a book called How War, Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything. Can you repeat that title a couple more times? For yes. Me? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything. How Everything Became War and the Military <laughs> Became Everything. Good job. Okay, You're a thanks. bad person, David. Pardon me? You're a bad person for not repeating the front page of the New York Times. <laughs> yeah, that, that too. <laughs> oh, sorry. No. Front page of the New York Times. Okay, listen, 
And this is all just a setup. Everything is in war. There isn't a war in this hemisphere, Rosa. How wrong you are. (laughs) Yeah, I I actually – one of the things that my book talks about quite a lot is what we choose to call war and what we don't choose to call war and the the political impulses behind those choices and their implications. But uh, it seems to me that drug-related violence in Mexico, some of which spills over right here into the United States, should certainly be called a war. Interesting. Corey, we're actually onto an interesting topic here that almost well, never happens. Well, every now and then, we have to fight. It's like a broken clock is right twice a day. Yeah, well, exactly. But here's an interesting thing, Corey. Is it possible that we crave war, we need it to sort of understand the way we are organized as a society, that there are big groups within our society that profit from war and have actually organized their whole lives around war, and that in an era in which there aren't actually wars, we actually have to invent them, to make them up, to enter (laughs) this era of semantic warfare um, over the use of the word war, uh, when in fact perhaps it's time to fold up those tents and Turn the money over to public schools and 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 helping the Chicago Cubs finally win a pennant, right, Yucky? Count down to tickets. Okay, exactly. Okay, <laughs> now we turn to our Cardinals fan. Wait, Corey Cor- didn't get to say anything. I know okay, that oh, she right. is Corey, the Cardinals. Corey, Corey, Corey. You're she, is, Cardinals she is the Cardinals fan. She was tweeting about Bob Gibson a couple weeks ago. Yes, Bob Gibson, the finest player ever to play baseball, in my judgment. That is that um, is very it, possibly true. You're all uh, just trying to avoid talking about my yeah. war. Yeah, well, we're past <laughs> it. War, though, no, I don't think we can yet declare victory and uh, eliminate the defense budget. In part because one of the one of the reasons we don't have war is because deterrence works. It certainly is working so far against great powers, the strongest states in the international order. Um, The United States is so good at actual war that we have driven our adversaries to the the polar extremes of the conflict scale. Um, And that's a good thing for us. But I'm with Rosa on the start of your question, David, which is that there is violence going on in the Americas. uh, And we are actually calling it war. We call it a war on drugs. Right. But it's not actually a war on drugs. We called it a war on terror. It's not actually a war on terror. These are constructions to win defense budget appropriations. They are not actually reflective of what conventional war is or Anything Tell like that to the Pentagon? Exactly, well, I am, <laughs> and I hope they're listening. Um, and if you have more than three stars on your shoulder, please call me directly. Otherwise, call my assistant. Um, but the so I don't agree that this is a, a clawing for money. That is that we call it the war on drugs in order to funnel money through the defense budget. I. Think, although I would defer to Rosa, who, by the way, had a front page New York <laughs> Times book review, positive review. Don't of any her. of you forget it. Um, that it's not the scrum. You know, Yucky had some pretty good reviews for his book, too. He's just, I just, I'm looking at his face and he's doing everything in his power to restrain himself. It's simply to not mention, uh, it was also on the front page of the New York Times. I know, I know that. I know that. Without, without so much love. Okay, Corey, you and I are losers, but keep going. 
That yeah, is we can have a factually club, correct statement, David. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think we are funneling, we are calling things war in order to funnel money at them, in order to funnel money into the defense budget. I think we are calling things war because it's the socially acceptable way to pretend you are dealing with a problem that we, like with drug policy, we have no idea what to actually do. And so we call it war to focus attention on it and to try and grapple in some way, in effect, largely ineffectually with it. But I defer to Rosa. Well, well, don't defer to Rosa. Let's turn to Yucky here. He's got two and a half hours left of working for me still. Make him count. And 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 but but on the other hand, there's no reason. That means there's no reason to agree. Where where do you? I mean, you've been covering war for a long time, and. There is clearly a distinction between what we meant by war during the Cold War, what we meant by war during World War II, and what we mean by war today. I mean, that's the whole point of Rose's book, which she seems to have missed. Um, <laughs> it's really hard to remember what the book said, frankly. <laughs> Especially when the, when the headline, when the title was as cryptic. It's so long. As yeah. yeah. It's so long. You know, thinking about Columbia, it struck me as kind of really old school and really old style in a strange way. Because you had two entities that recognized themselves, were willing to sit at a table, shook hands at the end of it, and you actually had what we thought of as a peace deal, so cute. dating back centuries. But yeah. think right about point. you know, think about today. You can't. It's hard to envision that at the end of the civil war in Syria, when the carnage finally ends, you'll have some Assad person politely shaking hands with a Nusra person or an ISIS person. It's hard to imagine that when the war on terror, however we define it, whenever that ends, you're going to have some Al Qaeda head somewhere shake hands with some U.S. We will general shake somewhere. Hands with terror. Exactly. We don't talk to them except we do. But, you know, we have what it's used like to be— like a Bergman be, movie. And in walks death. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, we, we used to have wars, and those wars would end with treaties and handshakes and agreements. I think now we have wars that the word—we use the word kind of elastically and because it doesn't touch many of us. When you think about what wars used to be, you had hundreds of thousands of people serving— now, you know, Rose and I would, and Corey, we've all heard this, that the, and David, you know, you've mentioned as well, it's not so much that the nation goes to war, it's that the military goes to war, and that even within the military, it's a small fraction of the military that goes to war. So war is abstract. War is something the average American doesn't need to think about because it never touches them. Well, the war on drugs is being fought by the DEA and by local police authorities. It's not being fought by the military for the most part, although the Coast Guard and some others play a role in it. The war on terror, I mean, there was a debate about whether it was appropriate to call it, particularly after the Bush administration overreached so far. Um, but it does; it is, you know, it is core to the point that you make in your book here, Rosa. That you know, war became everything. The question is whether that's kind of a compensation for traditional war fading from the scene. Well, I I, I do think that on the one hand, yeah. So. Dead Prussians. Let's talk about dead Prussians. Clausewitz says, "Wow, this is usually is, Corey's angle." Yeah, that war is it's violent, it's organized, it's it's mass rather than individual, and it has political purposes. And from that perspective, you know, obviously World War II, the Civil War, American Civil War, uh, they fit perfectly neatly into that into that framework. And indeed, even the conflict in Colombia fits pretty neatly into that framework. But many of the things that we've labeled war since then don't fit into that. When we talk about cyber war, we're talking about something that's not violent. When we talk about the war on terror, we have no idea what the organized political ends are. It's it's often but not always violent. Uh, it's 
doesn't have that sort of level of organization in terms of a unitary enemy that we think that I think certainly Clausewitz thought of unitary enemy or enemies. It's it's so shape shifting. Um, and I make the point about the the uh, Mexican drug conflicts, not to sort of make the semantic argument about whether we should or shouldn't call that war, but certainly to make the point that if we are willing to call the war on terrorism war, which maybe we shouldn't, um, but if we're calling that war, the Mexican drug conflicts has killed as many or more people uh, than most Islamic terrorist groups combined. Uh, the scale of the carnage is certainly at a similar level, and the organizational level of the of the actors in charge is certainly at a similar level. So, so we can. I think there. <laughs> Arguments about whether it makes any sense to call it war, but but and and I wouldn't, and it has particular legal implications if we do. But it's probably at a minimum worth remembering that the peace deal in Colombia. Not that any of you are likely to forget it. That the peace deal in Colombia, notwithstanding that 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 doesn't mean that people in organized groups aren't slaughtering large groups of other people in this hemisphere. They've been doing it for a long time, and they're continuing to do it. Yeah. No. Well, that's true. But we use particular words for particular reasons. And as you noted, uh, being a lawyer, uh, uh, it has special resonance. Uh, say, we refer to something as a war for a particular kind of reason. And it involves typically at least one organized army in combat against some other threat, right? I Got mean, that in Mexico. Right. Um, well, no. In Mexico, you've got the you state. You've this. got the military forces of the state uh, against the organized armed forces of a variety of different cartels. Well, but okay. The the I, look. I think you could. You you can you can make that argument. I'm personally. I I I'm not persuaded. I'm 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 personally of the view that there are things that are violent and complex and cost many lives. That are not wars, and and I and I, I wouldn't disagree with that, and I and I and I think that the it, it is a political choice. What would we gain if we call that war versus you know what would be the implications of calling a war political and legal? And I think that there's some sound reasons to decide we don't we don't want to go there. I, but but I, I do think it's worth remembering that I actually think it's an easier case to make that what's going on in Mexico is a form of armed conflict than that what has gone on between the the United States vis-a-vis a a variety of extremist, violent Islamist groups is armed conflict. Um, So that that doesn't actually cut against your argument, David, but I I think it's probably just worth keeping in mind that Mexico looks a lot more like a traditional armed conflict than than what's happening in the war on terror. But Corey, didn't we get in a lot of trouble during the Bush administration for defining the conflict against terrorists as a war and treating a non-traditional, asymmetric uh, conflict uh, in a way that was uh, ultimately inappropriate because we didn't really have a military that was designed to fight that kind of conflict? I don't think the characterization of the war on terror as a war was a mistake because we didn't have the right kind of military. It's that we didn't have everything else that was needed to manage this problem. And so we we canalized our approach into strictly military means. Um, the, wait, wait, the wait. Problem is, we, we did what to it? Canal, we can- channeled it. 
Channelized. Ah. Uh, it's kind of like a mix between cannibalized and channeled, which is a very useful word. <laughs> oh, I, I see. Okay. Rosa may be the future of Warfare Fellow, but I'm the past of Warfare Fellow. You're the ghost of Warfare Past. <laughs> Rosa's the ghost of Warfare Future. And and both of you believe in that famous Christmas character, Santa Clausovitz. Oh, my God, David, oh, that was horrible. That was just... Yeah. Oh, uh, sorry. We have a moment of silence to get over that. <laughs> it's, it's an old Jewish man joke. <laughs> My grandfather told oh, that really? joke. All right. Come on. We should that somehow. Yeah. So somehow really we should have Maria Ori, who does our engineering here, she should get a snare drum. <laughs> we should have rim shots. Well, we should get a snare drum. That will only encourage you to further <laughs> depredations like that, David. Okay. Sorry. Uh, sorry. Ghost of Warfare Past. Go on. The dealing with the tactic of terrorism as used by non-state forces in order to require much stronger states and organizations to pay an enormous political price and thereby discourage their public willingness to engage in a conflict is I agree with Rosa that describing that at war, as war is intellectually sloppy in a way that, as I think you were suggesting, David, drives us towards unsuitable strategies for managing that problem. And, and in my judgment, too often we narrow those to military means when they are not the most effective way of handling the problem. Right. And and as we now know, after having been engaged in this so-called war on terror, not just for the past 15 years, but actually for 40 years probably, um, that intelligence, police work, political action, uh, uh, cultural initiatives, educational initiatives all play a role in combating extremism. It's not just boots on the ground, right? I mean, does anybody disagree with that? At the risk of getting barraged by more furious, probably anti-Semitic Trump voters than I already have been, I will say this. We always say we're a strong nation, and we're not. We're a nation of cowards for the most part. And you see that particularly when it comes to terrorism. Countries that deal with terrorism, routinely. Yucky's next book. I'm ready. I'm going out. Nation of cowards. End up front page review in the Daily Stormer. I'm leaving (laughs) FP guns blazing. Uh, Hot take after hot take. Yeah, but mature countries that deal with terror all the time. Israel doesn't call it a war on terror. When they go to actual war, it's a war. Otherwise, they think of it as law enforcement and intelligence. They know how. They know attacks are in some ways inevitable. They try not to give terrorists the kind of stature of saying that you're an army equal to ours, which war kind of implies. Attack happens, they deal with it, they move on. That's the case in what happened in France for a long time and in Turkey. This was never a war. And in uh, Sri Lanka and in... Exactly. In Northern Ireland. In Northern Ireland. In in the countries that have dealt with these for decades. We have suffered comparatively so little in terms of actual number of dead people, thankfully, and so few attacks, thankfully. But we've inflated it into a war which, as Rosa talks about and writes about, has legal costs, there's financial costs, there's human life costs. And there's also the propaganda when it gives a terror group. If the, United, the mighty United States says, we're at war with you, suddenly this little group of 20, 30, 100 people, they're on par with the great enemies the U.S. has fought in the past. And it's a huge mistake. I, I think it's a very big point. And I think, you know, it's kind of interesting in the context of the current political debate in the United States, right, that, you know, we have one candidate who says America's at risk, America's in danger. And it's almost certainly the case 
that America has never been less at risk in its history than it is right now, has never been more secure, has never faced weaker enemies, has ne- I mean, it's it, this. These, these are the the these will someday be seen as the good old days of 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 you know America's. You know, strategic standing in the in the world, and in terms of the risks that we face, right, Rosa? Well, I think that it is absolutely right that we we face very few powerful enemies in the forms of states or other organizations that can do any pose any kind of existential threat to us. I think I think it's not that we don't face threats, and there aren't some very very scary things about our position in the world and the world's position in the world, if you will, that relate to things like climate change. But but no, I I agree with you, David. I, I and I I also agree with Yoki. I think it's I think it's embarrassing, you know, that this is the nation that that this is a once a nation of pioneers. This is the nation that fought Hitler and a tiny group of people. Uh, has us all sort of quaking in our in our boots and going, oh my God, terrorism, help! Uh, we're in constant well, actually, danger. I want to. <laughs> you want to defend. You want to defend the honor of America. I do want to defend the honor of America um, in two ways. First, I disagree with Yogi's headline, although I agree with what with much of his analysis. You don't. Uh, I don't think you need to label us a nation of cowards to suggest we're making some bad strategic choices. I think um, it was a rhetorical device. I, I could be wrong, but I... And I yet, I still think, I still object to it, even if it was rhetorical. Um, the second thing is, though, that there, both Rosa and Yoki are absolutely right that we are giving enormous stature to adversaries who gain from our characterization of them in that way. I basically think the United States is safer than at most times in the past. But I wouldn't go as far as you did, David, for a couple of reasons. First, the proliferation of technologies now allows non-state actors, organizations and states that are not great powers, have the capacity to inflict enormous damage. That has not happened yet to the United States, and that's a beautiful thing. You sound like Rudy Giuliani because it has happened. And where Rudy Giuliani said, we have not been attacked by terrorists until Obama came into office, neglecting, of course, so 9-11. They did, did. I demand a duel for you throwing down an insult like that <laughs> at me. I do not think I sound like Rudy Giuliani. You would never invite Rudy Giuliani onto this podcast. The fury is, is coming in loud and clear. Yeah, okay. A thousand okay. miles away. I'm sorry. Go on. Uh, What I was trying to suggest wasn't that there had never been a terrorist attack on our country, but that, you know, groups of 100 people, as Rosa dismissively described them, can actually get their hands on weaponry or capabilities that could do enormous damage to our country. So it's not crazy to be worried about that. No, I agree with that, Corey, and and, and I don't mean to dismiss it. I, I think I, I would sort of say that David's point just being that we don't face any threats uh, along the lines of uh, the British Army in in the late uh, oh you know, 1700s or, or Nazi Germany sure. or Japan during World War II. Armed Russia um, that's growing increasingly paranoid and adversarial and risk tolerant. Yeah, but you know, it's interesting, right? Because we live in a political environment 
in which if a candidate stood up and said, you know, we're safer than we've ever been and strong enough to handle all the risks we face, and this is not a time of crisis for America, they'd be run out of town. And, you know, we saw, uh, I agree completely. I mean, after San Bernardino, you saw Obama say almost exactly that, that these terrorists are not eight feet tall, they're not at our doorstep. And he was immediately slammed as weak and out of touch and cowardly by people who said, no, 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 they are eight feet feet tall and they are at our doorstep. Why can't you get it? What I find fascinating is we think so much about, and we're talking so much about war as defined by ISIS, you know, and and al-Qaeda, men with guns, when cyber is an actual potential war. Because there you do have an organized country. You do have targets that could cause enormous damage to the U.S., whether it's financial, whether it's taking a power grid for an hour, a day, a week. And that is much closer. I mean, you know, Rosie made the point before, you don't have direct people shooting other people. But in terms of lives lost, if a hospital lost power. Potentially, for, yeah. You know, yeah, for, but that's for true. But we have a failing school system, yeah. which is also, ensuring okay. that, yeah. that, you know, minority students in inner cities are graduating at the rate of 50 percent. And they'll never be in our economy. And that will destroy their lives. We're not in a war with our failing school system. Well, I think that once you – the problem is that once you start saying, well, uh, the the indirect harm caused by a cyber attack that took out the electrical power grid, which led to people in hospitals dying, if that counts as war, then, for instance, things like economic sanctions against Iraq for for much – you know, prior prior to toppling Saddam Hussein would also constitute war because they they have the – predictable result of people dying. Um, so so I, I think it does and, get and, back to David's point of if we start calling everything war, you know, then how do you distinguish between direct and indirect results and, and how do you how do you assess responsibility? How do you say who's a civilian, who's not? It gets hopelessly complicated. Well, and also it tends to push you towards a solution that's probably an inappropriate solution, as has happened with the war on terror. You know, that the first response of the Bush administration to the war on terror was a traditional invasion of another country, even though another country wasn't the, or, or the second response, but it was, was, was not really the actor in all. I wanted, though, if I, I mean, this, this conversation has gone in a direction I didn't expect it to go in. Um, I actually did have one thing I wanted to say about Colombia. If I if I can <laughs> revert back Feel to the original excellent university. And Alexander not, Hamilton, right? No, no, not no. Columbia, the university, which which hasn't had any uh, wars or peace deals yet so far. Although as the far Battle as we of know. Morningside Heights, in which Hamilton <laughs> distinguished himself, actually took place now you right sound where like the Corey. campus is. Um, but Columbia, ah, uh, oh, I, like uh, I will pronounce it more appropriately. Um, I, as as someone who still cares about human rights and has a background in human rights. One of the things that I think is actually really interesting and hasn't been commented on that much about the peace deal in Colombia uh, is that it's the sort of first big uh, peace accord negotiated in the shadow of the International Criminal Court. And when the International Criminal Court was being discussed, uh, which was for many, many years, uh, many argued, including the United States government, uh, at times that it would be a really bad idea to have an international criminal court that could hold people accountable for uh, crimes against humanity, war crimes, et cetera, because it would make it harder to broker peace deals because why would anybody want to – why would a rebel group, for instance, be willing to enter into a peace agreement uh, if you couldn't get amnesty? And the, the international criminal court would say, you know, you can't – you don't give amnesty for war crimes. Um Uh, You know, that if you thought you would end up in jail, why would you ever lay down your arms? And one of the things that's really interesting about the Columbia Agreement 
um, is that both sides were very creative about finding ways to both comply with the requirement that you don't get amnesty if you can, uh, committed egregious crimes, but not let it become a trade-off between sort of peace versus justice. And, and the this incredibly complicated deal, among other things, makes people who committed crimes, who confessed to them, don't get amnesty, but are under house arrest for a period, effectively house arrest for a period of time of movement restrictions. Victim groups were involved in negotiating the terms of the agreement and so forth. And I think it's it's both it's both really interesting and really creative. We'll see obviously what happens and how much it holds and whether it really does succeed in ending the conflict or not. But it does suggest that a lot of those fears voiced by opponents of uh, international criminal court and similar regimes were were misplaced, that it is not impossible to both have a fairly robust uh, uh, set of norms and judicial institutions in place to try to bring an end to total impunity from a legal perspective. And yet at the same time, you can broker peace agreements It'll be, inter- it'll be really interesting to see what happens, but I think that's one of the pieces of it that hasn't gotten as much comment. I think that's a, I think that's a very interesting set of points. Let's, let's turn the conversation a little bit here. We've got a little more time, and we're going to push our listeners who are on treadmills to their absolute limit today with a slightly longer <laughs> um, podcast. But, you know, the, one of the things about the war in Colombia is that most Americans weren't talking about it. Uh, it had been going on for a long time. There weren't Americans fighting in it actively all the time, although you know we've we've had some involvement down there, fairly considerable. But but there's a lot of wars going on elsewhere, not in this hemisphere, or unless you accept Rose's uh, thesis about the, you know what, what the the drug war. But certainly in Africa, there's a number of wars going on. There are insurgencies in Southeast Asia and other kinds of countries. Corey. You follow the world uh, with much greater acuity than most people. Um, talk about some of the wars that, that you don't think are getting the attention they deserve. What's your favorite war, Corey? <laughs> I know. Hers, hers is the War of 1812 is her favorite war. But... <laughs> so I will resist the temptation to talk about Andrew Jackson's betrayal of his Native American allies in the War of 1812 and say that I think the two biggest wars that are getting insufficient attention are actually both right in front of our faces. And they're the war in Syria and the war in Ukraine. There's a lot of violence going on all over the world. um, And I don't mean to trivialize the suffering of others. David, you raise a really interesting point that perhaps Happens. this is almost our fiftieth episode. I don't know if it's actually our fiftieth. I think this is Tom, about time you raised a really interesting point. This is <laughs> actually this is our fiftieth episode of this show, and I finally raised an interesting point. Um, that I don't actually think that it is true that the reason that the that the war against the FARC in Colombia proceeded to a negotiated solution, provided that the people of Colombia validate that. I don't think American inattention was what allowed this war to come to a negotiated solution. In fact, I think American attention in the form of Plan Colombia was essential to the government having a strong enough capacity to counter the FARC to to bring a negotiated solution into possibility. So so I'm fighting the I'm fighting the scenario as they say, which is that there are 
that I don't believe it's true that American inattention allows wars to come to better solutions. Oh, thank you. Um, I'd also thought we were going to get through an episode here without attacking Obama directly or indirectly, but I know that was a direct attack. Yucky, same question. I agree about the war in Ukraine because I think that that is growing and about to flare again, and it's a sign of we can avoid trying to say it's an attack on Obama, but it is what Putin is doing and will do until he and President Trump agree to carve up the world and yeah, I go their separate the ways. the other day Biden said, you know, those of you who are worried about Article 5 and NATO better hope we don't get a gambler in the Kremlin who's going to test the limits. And I was like, what <laughs> planet is he on? Right. <laughs> you know, you know, it's like this guy has been doing this for years. We have the ultimate gambler in the Kremlin. And pushing further and further without without any pushback. I, I think, you know, the other conflicts, Syria matters tremendously, obviously, as, as does Libya. But Mali has gone to hell again, northern Mali. I spent a month there and I, I care about it a lot. But you've got all the kind of terror groups and the same problems you had in Libya, in Syria, now again in Mali. I mean, if we think back. Wasn't Mali the biggest sort of land area controlled by al-Qaeda? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And until ISIS started conquering Iraq and Syria, it was the only place al-Qaeda had conquered and, and held territory. The French helped kick them out. Now they're back. Other groups that are more violent than al-Qaeda are back. And, you know, it's, it's a reminder that you can kick some of these groups out of territory they hold in one place, and then a different variant holds territory in a different place. And then it, get, it does get you back, you know, not to get us stuck too much on the definition of war. But then you do have, again, a group holding territory, a military force trying to push them out of that territory, and then, lo and behold, they're in a different territory. And Mali is fascinating, and it's violent, and it's getting much, much worse. Well, and, and obviously, at the moment, the African continent is the continent which has the largest number of uh, ongoing armed conflicts. Different points in, in history, in recent history, its other continents have, have vied for that honor. Uh, but right now, Africa is the, the dubious, dubious honor of winning. Uh, and, and also, well, look, over the past quarter century, yeah. more people have died more in Africa than everywhere else. Well, added up. And, and I was going to say, you know, and many of those conflicts have have little or nothing to do with the uh, extremist Islamic ideologies that that we spend most of our time thinking about in the post 9-11 context in the United States, uh, looking at the conflicts in the center, Central African Republic, C.A.R., in the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, in southern Sudan, you know, these these are conflicts where enormous numbers of people have been killed and continue to die, and they almost never make the front page of the newspaper in this country or the top of the news. Uh, uh, even when you have single episodes in which thousands of people are killed at once, they almost never even make. But the no, news I, th here. I think more people have died in Central Africa in these various wars than were killed in the Holocaust. Yeah. And, oh, and, oh, yes, and, absolutely. You know, that just doesn't have traction. Yeah. And, and again, you know, a piece of that is that in this case, the fact that they don't fit our, our sort of traditional view of what war is supposed to look like sort of works against them, right? I mean, even though we, we've managed to make – we've managed to make the – our efforts to address Islamic extremist terrorism by calling it war, we've managed to get everybody to treat it as if it's World War II. But in the context of many of these conflicts, they're, they're, they're long-standing conflicts. Um, they kind of flare up and then they die down again. They're messy. They don't involve, you know, fancy military uniforms and, you know, hats with big plumes on them and so forth. Um, and they're far away and they involve people who are often very, very poor. 
and we don't really pay very much attention to them at all. They don't, they don't, they don't fit our sort of romantic image of war, and so we just write them off as, well, that that stuff just happens. I think it's because they they also don't oftentimes involve Americans. I mean, we think about that horrific attack two weeks ago in South Sudan, where you had American aid workers, Western aid mm, workers, mm-hmm. beaten, raped, tortured within sight of both the U.S. the U.S. embassy and the main U.N. compound, and that suddenly reminded people. Thankfully, not at FP because we've been writing about it a lot, but. I think it reminds a lot of people, oh, my God, South Sudan is still going to hell and is still a mess. And otherwise, people had completely forgotten and didn't care. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, you know, there's this old joke about The New York Times that, you know, if, you know, an earthquake took place in Bolivia, you know, the headline would be one American killed an earthquake in Bolivia. And then the subhead would be 30,000 Bolivians also die. And, you know, these these kind of views, this kind of narcissism of the United States you know, further colors this debate on war. There, the, you know, the war uh, is as we define it, and and war that gets covered tends to be war that involves Americans. It's also fascinating to me that the places where we don't talk about it, where we haven't really called it a war, are often where we've done the best. I mean, Colombia, where we've helped, whether it was catching Escobar till now. Well, US that goes military. back to your earlier point that that that. Until really the 9-11 attacks, there was a very good reason that that states were often quite reluctant to uh, label insurgent or terrorist activity, armed conflict, because uh, you don't want to glorify or legitimize the other actors and because it makes people less hysterical and panicky and so forth. And, and because well, those, those seem like good reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And sometimes when you publicize it, you make the government yeah. that you're working with stop working with you. I mean, we've yeah. helped the Philippines for a long time decimate Abu Sayyaf in part because we weren't blaring about how we helped the Philippines decimate Abu Sayyaf. Right. And because if we said we were fighting him, you know, what it would end up doing is it would empower him. Because it would raise him up to the level of being our enemy. ISIS runs stuff about how it's at war with the U.S. Al-Qaeda runs stuff about how they're at war with the United States. Neither ISIS nor Al-Qaeda nor ISIS plus Al-Qaeda plus every other terror group on the planet poses a strategic risk to the United States. It poses a risk to Americans. It poses a risk to some businesses. It poses a risk to certain kinds of countries in the world. But the United States built itself up over the course of the past 50 to you know 75 years to be able to withstand a real war with a nuclear-armed superpower on the other side of that war to fight wars in two different theaters and still survive and thrive as a country. Uh, these are, 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 are sideshows. They're important. And in the context, say, of Syria, regionally, they're profoundly important. But they're not... They're not what we once meant by war. I want to I want to wrap it up here in three or four minutes, but I do want to go back to a point that that Yucky made here, and 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 also Corey, you had made this point. We do give a lot of coverage compared to the wars in Africa, to Syria and Ukraine, but we actually don't give pay enough attention to them. I think that was the the, the point that was made. Corey, how do you think things in Ukraine may play out? I. I think we should be really nervous about this latest Russian provocation of suggesting that the Ukrainians were trying to recover Crimea. First of all, because there's no evidence it's actually true. But second of all, it it seems to me that the Putin government is headed to ever more dangerous places. 40,000 troops massing on Ukraine's border the suggestion that they're, that the Ukrainians are provoking Russian action, I think this all sounds really dangerous. And to take up Yoki's point from earlier, 
the fact that the Russians keep engaging in violent provocation and we're so fearful of getting involved in a fight with the Russians that we are not responding to them is actually, I think, encouraging a rabid dog. Rosa, Syria. Syria. What, what, what is it? What is it that's not getting enough coverage in Syria that you think deserves to be? I actually think it's it's getting coverage. It's just getting coverage that doesn't doesn't lead anybody to do much of anything because I think the coverage has not without some reason kind of degenerated into articles that sort of say, oh, Syria, it's such a complete and utter disaster that nobody can figure out anything to do anymore. And so we all read that and everybody gets depressed and they they sort of say, oh, well, guess I don't need to worry about that because there's nothing anyone can do anymore. I, I actually think that the what, what doesn't get coverage, what doesn't get coverage or enough coverage is trying to be creative about possible avenues for ending the conflict still or at least reducing the conflict still short of short of reducing the ending or reducing the conflict by uh, reducing what's left of Syria to so much rubble that nobody bothers to fight anymore because there's nobody left. Um, so so I, I think there's been a kind of a nihilistic tone that in the last few years has really dominated the coverage, uh, which makes it makes it hard to take seriously any ideas of change, even though I would like to believe that there are still some possible avenues for you know, nothing can be done to address the horrific stuff that's already happened, but to reduce the amount of horrific stuff that happens in the future. Yaki or Corey, I just like third-party perspectives on this. To me, that sounded like a former member of the Obama administration <laughs> blasting President Obama for his attitude that no, this I was would never too do complicated. Like it was too complicated to solve. Um, do you agree with my assessment? <laughs> Uh, I agree with the assessment, and I, I agree, frankly, with Rose's point. I mean, I think Syria is so horrific that there's a tendency now to just assume nothing can make it better, so therefore let's turn away until a photo of a dazed or dying child makes us look at it again and feel terrible and put up on Facebook, and then we can ignore it again. There are things that could still be done. I mean, it's, you know, not everything should be likened, obviously, to the Holocaust, but there is a stage even in 1942, 43, where if train tracks had been bombed, lives would have been saved. Right now today, if the Syrian and Russian air forces were grounded, right now today, that would alleviate suffering. Right now today, if, if Assad's helicopters were grounded, it would alleviate suffering. Right now today, if we were focused less on did he get rid of his chemical weapons and more on why is he using barrel bombs, that would alleviate suffering. There are specific things that could be done. But I think because it's so horrific, the tendency is just to say it's too much. Let's not think about it. But when we should. the president has sort of made a campaign to say there are no good solutions, implying that there were no uh, steps that were worth taking. Yeah, exactly. When you say solution, as he does, I, I agree completely. You've made it a binary. Either it can be fixed or it can't, as compared to can it be improved. Okay. Corey, because I, this— I, yes. Three cheers for Yoki. Um, that's the note he should go out from foreign policy into the Vox world on because it's a magnificent point, so important— and well, that's why he's going into the world of explanatory journalism. That's what they do at Fox. But I wanted to give, you know, this is Yucky's f farewell here in addition to being our 50th, although we'll have him back when his next book is also in the cover of the New York Times book review. But I wanted to end on a point that I know would resonate with him. Corey, I would like to give you 60 seconds to explain why Bob Gibson is superior to Ferguson Jenkins or Greg Maddox or anybody else who ever pitched for the Chicago Cubs. Go on. <laughs> The Major League Baseball lowered the pitcher's mound 
after Bob Gibson. I feel like that's an institutional acknowledgement. But did anybody ever have as much mental toughness in the game as Bob Gibson? Roberto Clemente broke his leg with a line drive and he pitched to two more batters. He, yeah. he yeah. was tough, <laughs> he was smart, he, he intimidated batters, he managed the pace of the game. He was, he was just, in addition to having the lowest season ERA I think ever recorded, he was just mentally tough enough to, to drive the game. The question wasn't how did he have 19 wins in 1958, but how did he lose any games? To which I would say one thing. It doesn't take mental strength to keep winning. It takes mental strength to get out of bed, put on your uniform as a cub, and know you're going to lose again and again and again. <laughs> no, no, this is true. The strength of the Chicago Cubs is their ability to to live with being losers. Um, not a team of cowards. Not, not a, wow. Book number three. Book number three is not a team of cowards. Well, I think that was the appropriate send-off. Uh, if Yuki were staying here, I'd give him a real chance to reply, but he's not. So with the, we end on the note of supporting uh, Corey's uh, thesis on behalf of old number 45. Well, not only that, while, while the rest of you have been yammering away, um, I, I've been carefully constructing out of my uh, foreign policy memo memo pad that was thoughtfully placed here for me to doodle on. I made a little uh, cootie catcher fortune teller origami which we can use to predict the uh, situation most likely to be the topic of our next podcast. And uh, David, <laughs> after this is over, I'm going to allow you to to uh, I'm going to allow you to use the cootie catcher to predict it. It's, it's very nice. It's true. Although I'm looking inside the cootie catcher. No, you can't. You can't and, peek. And nowhere in there does it say Trump. <laughs> so it That's seems true. really unlikely. Well, however, here's what he I'm going to do. Although might be a cootie. Here's what I'm going to do, provided Rosa says it's okay. The person who submits the very best episode idea of the coming week will get this cootie catcher. Absolutely. I will, I will make the cootie catcher available. A, a cootie catcher signed by Rosa Brooks, who, in case you didn't know it, has a book out called How Everything <laughs> Became War and the Military Became Everything, which was well-reviewed on the front page of the New York Times Book Review, which is a place that's so esteemed it once also well-reviewed Yucky Driesen's <laughs> book um, and has ignored systematically everything that Corey and I have ever we'll, written. Yucky, we'll fix that. We'll change that. Yeah, we will, we will we'll change that. Although I was – never mind. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us for the 50th episode of the ER. Please join us again for the 51st. It is certain to be even better. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Yucky. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, everybody out there for listening. And we'll see you again soon. You have been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.